Okay. And so we've been talking about how Paul is uh, making his way back to Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome, of course, but he's going back to Jerusalem and he's on this third missionary journey. He went to Macedonia and then he's like, man, the Spirit is leading me pushing me back to Jerusalem. There were a couple of texts that we have read where it just talks about that Paul is just set in the spirit. I need to get back to Jerusalem. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 21 in Acts. And when it came about that we had parted from there and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to, to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come uh, to, to in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there was a ship uh, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey, while they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board uh, the ship and they returned home again. And uh, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed there with them for a day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him to not go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Amen. We'll stop there. This passage has a variety of cities and a bunch of different groups of Christians, each speaking for God. Or so they think, right? Number one, Paul is on a spirit-bound mission to Jerusalem. Like he was in Macedonia, the Spirit is leading me there, and he's going by land, by ship, and he's just said farewell to Ephesus, and he's on ship after ship, unloading cargo, greeting brethren wherever he goes, and he is on his way because God is telling me, get to Jerusalem. And as he's on his way to Jerusalem, whether it be in Tyre, in Caesarea, you got the prophet Agabus, you got all of these people telling Paul things according to the Spirit, at least from their vantage point, from their perspective. This is an interesting thing, right? Have you ever had like sports fanatics pray for God to give victory to their team? Like what if like opposing teams all prayed for their team? One God says, God, give victory to my team, right? How, do, how does God answer that, so to speak, right? And so if God is speaking to Paul, go to Jerusalem, but he's speaking by the Spirit through other people, don't go to Jerusalem, which one's true? Right? Like, what do you follow? Right? And so let me kind of frame this message a little bit. 
And this is in the introduction of your sermon cards, right? The, the three things that I want to say to frame this message. Number one, I know I don't got a screen, so just listen, okay? God speaks. He speaks, okay? Whether it's audibly, internally, through circumstances, general revelation, specific, special revelation, He speaks, Okay, I just want to state that as a general framework, that I believe through Scripture that God is involved in creation, that He actually is involved in the lives of His people and the world in general, and He communicates things. That's a general statement that I just want to let out there. He communicates stuff. How He communicates, I'm not going to qualify that right now. I just want to say He communicates. The Bible is clear in that. The word of the Scriptures itself is telling that God wants to say things to people. Okay? So God speaks to people and He actually speaks through people. Okay? He speaks to them and through them. That's number one. The second thing that I want to say to frame this message is that hearing from God is both beneficial and good. Okay? That if an individual hears the communication of God for his or her life, that's a good thing. Okay? That this involves a sense of clarity of life, of mission, and a bunch of other stuff. So if an individual can actually tap in somewhere, and rather than talking about this weird, spoofy, spiritual stuff, but somehow hear the communication of God, whether it be in prayer, whether it be through reading of the Bible, whether it be through meditation, if an individual hears from God, it is both beneficial and good for his or her life. I just want to state that. Okay? The, second, the third thing that I'll state to frame this message is that application is not automatic. It's not, okay? After a person hears from God how to actually apply that voice, that communication, that direction, it's not so clear-cut. It's like not just automatic, like God says A, B, C, and then you just walk out A, B, C in your life. There's a little bit more involved there, and I think this passage makes that clear, okay? That there are different factors kind of influencing that voice what I'm hearing, okay? And so the three things again to frame this message, God speaks, hearing from God is beneficial and good, and thirdly, application is not automatic. First point, it's easy and tempting to half-bake God's voice and direction, okay? And what do I mean by half-bake? What I mean by that is like, like uh, you got this chicken, right? And you stick it in the oven and it's good for food, right? But if you only cook it halfway, it's of no value. Like, it's like you're not going to eat a half-cooked chicken. It just doesn't work that way. You need to cook it fully in order for it to actually apply or be edible to your stomach. Otherwise, you'll just get sick. Okay? That's what I mean by that. And that it's possible to get some sort of information from God to hear it, and then with that information, just kind of half-bake it, not fully really interact with it properly, and just come out with an application that is actually more hurtful. Okay? That, I think that's possible, and I think it's tempting. Okay? It's tempting. And I, I put a, a post out through our church this past week, right? And this is what I said, and actually it's on the ins inside of your bulletins this week, right? That little sentence that I put. It's the tendency of well-meaning Christians to hear something they believe is from God, 
and prematurely apply it in a way that reinforces something they want or already believe. Okay? I see this tendency in my life, right? Like, you're yearning for stuff, and I'm a Christian, I've been taught to pray, and I do pray, I see the advantages of praying, and when you pray, you know that God's involved, and He speaks, and He kind of interacts with you, and you, you kind of like have your eyes open, and you're just real like sensitive, your radar antennae are up, kind of just like you have an important decision to make, and you pray about it, God, give me wisdom, and what do you do after that? You're just like, okay, like, how's He going to do it? Like, you're, you're kind of surveying your circumstances a little bit, right? And in those moments, moments, it's so easy, especially when you want something already, right? Especially when you already believe a certain way, like you're looking through a lens that's already tinted, you begin to see everything that color, right? And as you're looking at your circumstances, somebody said something, you heard a message that week, a podcast came out, you flipped open, randomly open to a page in the Bible, whatever it is, and somehow like it reinforces something, like, ah, that's it, and you jump on it real quick. Because you want to go that way. You want to hear that. And it's so tempting to not really kind of vet through that a little bit. It's so tempting to not really wrestle with it and just to say, ah, it must be this. And you just kind of slam dunk it home. That's it. And then you walk with it. Right? Now, there are times when I think that's possible. But I think it's the tendency of most well-meaning Christians to run with it too quickly to apply it in a way that's premature. Because it's just, in a sense, reinforcing stuff that I just, that I just want. Right? If I think about the two Christian communities, both in Tyre and Caesarea, in this passage that we read, right? Paul's on this journey. He's sailing from uh, saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. And on this journey back, he lands in Tyre and he spends some days there. And all of them are saying in the spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Isn't that an interesting phrase? They said that in the spirit, right? And what that's referring to, like, they wholeheartedly believe from God that they received a message, Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem, which was true, by the way. But they interpreted that message, Paul will suffer in Jerusalem, and they didn't let it marinate. They didn't let it kind of sit any longer. And as soon as they heard that, like, Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem, they're like, man, we don't want him to suffer. We love the guy. We better tell him not to go. Like, isn't that an easy application, right? Like, there's a person you love, and God has, like, somehow downloaded to you that there is a certain, like, trial or suffering in front of this person, and it's down road A, right? And immediately, what do you take? You take that information, and you go to the person you love, and you say, don't travel road A. Because you took that information, and you immediately applied it, in a way that really reinforced something that I wanted. And for the Christians in Tyre, I see this happening. They're like, God said Paul's going to suffer in Jerusalem. And so Paul's with them and he's, they're saying, like they're pleading with the guy in the spirit, don't go, don't go, right? But Paul, he can't be persuaded because he knows the spirit has told him to actually get there. And he like throws them the hand and he's like, you know what, I, I, I got to get there. And not being able to convince him, they walk with him to the shore, to the beach, women and children, and they're all like crying and kneeling and praying together probably, and then they send him off on his journey. 
And after he goes there, he, he leaves there, he finds his way to the city of Caesarea. And in Caesarea, he finds the, the evangelist Philip, one of the original deacons of the early church, right? He had four virgin daughters that were prophetesses of the Lord. And they also speak probably. A prophet from Judea named Agabus comes and he does something more visual. He, he like does, like, wouldn't that be strange? He just walks up to Paul and he goes, hey Paul. He like takes off his belt. Right? Takes off his belt and he just like binds his hands, his wrists and his ankles likely. And then he says that this is what God is saying. That the, the, the chains and, and binds and, and jail and imprisonment and this hardship is awaiting the individual that owns this belt. He didn't really give an interpretation beyond that. All he said was this is what's going to happen. And then you have all of the, the, the believers likely Philip and even his four virgin daughters who speak of from God. All of the Christians, as Luke was writing in Acts, we all were like in our hearts so moved by this visual example of Agabus that we all together were trying to persuade Paul, don't go. Don't go. You see what Agabus is saying? That if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. You will suffer. You better not go. This is the Christian community in Caesarea in one united heart, one voice saying this to Paul. Like, what a conundrum in a sense. Like, you have so many individuals speaking from God, hearing from God. And how do you settle the mess? How do you actually come out of this entire scenario with a proper application? Like when stuff is really important and on the line, we're like, you have a choice between three great job offers, but all lead you in completely different directions. And you are a Christian. You believe in God. You know He speaks to you and you pray, God, lead me down the path that is most pleasing to you. How in the world do you then begin to piece together a picture to actually make a decision and accept an offer? Maybe you've been at a point where you've uh, seriously dated more than one individual and you're or at least considering more than one individual. How do you decide, do I marry this person? Do I spend the rest of my life with this person? When you pray to God in that way, how do you filter through all of the voices that can potentially come? Like you come to a Christian community and it's a prayer gathering. What's typical of prayer gatherings is, anyone have any prayer requests, right? And then you go around the circle and you pray about it, right? And you, and you lift up all the different prayers. How do you then, from hearing from this group of fellow believers, come away from that with an application that is really what God wants, what He's willed? Like how do I hear that? This is a very practical question for a simple, well-meaning Christian. Because it impacts our lives in the big and the small ways. If I'm seeking direction in certain ways, I'm asking God to, to intervene in my life and to say stuff. How do I filter through what He says to actually come to a proper application of it? If I listened, if Paul listened to the Christians in Tyre, he would never have gone to Jerusalem. If he listened to the Christians in Caesarea, and he would never have gone there. And so, was it right for him to be just stubborn in what he believed was from God and march down a path, irrespective of entire Christian communities telling him otherwise? 
I think there would have been many of Christians in either Tyre or Caesarea that would have actually, in a sense, kind of like, um, you're just stubborn. You're not listening here. You're not listening, Paul. And I think it would have been easy to judge him that way. But haven't we done that in the past? Being the well-meaning Christian, seeing other people seemingly selfishly interpret the will of God for their lives and us saying all along from our objective standpoint, ah, tisk tisk. How easy is it, it, it is to have that sort of heart, right? That just simple saying, you know what? It's clear as day. God is not going to bless that. And you are just walking down that path, right? But somehow, could it be that we could kind of short-sight ourselves? And I think this passage speaks volumes into that. Second point. Applying God's word requires sifting and refining. I am so sad that the screen doesn't work through this message because I put a lot of time into the... Can you all turn around for a second? <laughs> Just, okay. This was the first point, like the, the framing, right? And so this was the half-baked point, right? This is like, I, there's a tendency of Christians to do that. And if you think about applying God's Word, it requires sifting and refining, in a sense, like how you come up with nuggets of gold, right? Now, please don't be misguided by Minecraft, okay? Gold is not that dense within blocks or rocks. Gold ores actually look more like actual rocks, Okay. And I know I kind of accentuated the gold a little bit and I kind of highlighted it and I, I, I increased the exposure to kind of get a little bit of the shiny stuff in there. But if you look at, a, at gold ore, which is just simply materials, minerals, or rocks containing stuff, right? And in this case, gold. So gold ore is just a rock. That's really what it is, right? That's all that it is. And traditionally, if you find a space that is worth mining, it will have one troy ounce of gold per ton of rock. That's a huge discrepancy. So when mining companies survey a land and they consider it worth mining, it will have on a high end one troy ounce, which is a little bit heavier than a traditional ounce, like 14 and a half ounces per pound. Okay? It will have one troy ounce per ton of rock. That equates to, if gold is like $1,300 per, per, what is that, per ounce, that equates to 66 cents per pound of rock, right? That's a very, very big discrepancy, big discrepancy. And so this is the issue that I want to talk about. Divine information, when God communicates something to His people, it's kind of like this ore, okay? It's just like a big chunk of rock, and contained within that, what I want to say is proper application. But in order to come out with pure application, you need to mine it, you need to refine it, you need to extract it. Okay, you can look forward for a second. You, you need to be able to take it out of the ore. And too often we receive the ore from God, the rock from God, and it's contained within that proper application, but in a sense I just take it, and the easy way is just to take that and just use that. But actually, what's inside of that, what's in the smaller fragments of it, is what God is actually, in a sense, trying to bring you to an application to. But the easy way out is not to refine it, not to sift 
through it. And so the three things that I say to you in terms of direction, of after hearing something from God, okay? And so, like you hear something, you, you read the Bible, and something like pierces through your heart, okay? You're in a time of prayer and meditation, and God just speaks through your inner man, your conscience, and He just awakens something, right? You're in a Christian gathering, a prayer meeting. You're walking down the street and you see something. Whatever it is. When you believe that you've heard something from God, here are the three things that I want to encourage you to do. Number one, let it marinate. Just let it sit with you. Like, in a sense, it's kind of like fighting impulse buying. Have you ever had impulse buying? Like, Amazon especially, man. Like, you get boxes delivered every day to your house because of impulse buying nowadays, right? But, like, impulse buying is like, just, just sleep on it. You'll feel differently in the morning type thing, okay? Now, in a sense, I think this can kind of backfire a little bit. Like, God is moving you down a certain way, and, like, you don't move, and you're, like, hesitant, and you're, like, stubborn about it, and you're, like, nah, I don't want to do that, and you just do that. I, I, it can backfire that way, but I, I'm not trying to talk about that. What I'm trying to say is, like, when you, like, meaningfully, like, you've sincerely felt you've heard something from God, I just want you to let it sit with you. Just spend time and just let it marinate. Like, Allow your heart to interact with that over a period of time. I'm not saying a decade of time. I'm just saying, like, sleep on it. Let it sit with you for a week. Don't make the decision right away after just hearing it. Let it marinate. The second thing is this. Push back emotional responses. Okay? Because this is exactly what the Christians at Tyre and Caesarea did. It was emotional, right? They loved the guy. God clearly said, you're going to suffer if you go to Jerusalem. So initial response was emotional. God said, you'll suffer if you go there. Don't go there. God saying, don't go there. That's emotional. Right? And so, uh, what I'm saying is fight against that. Fight against the tendency to just simply take bits of that information and just emotionally apply it. And then thirdly, integrate new information with context. Context. Okay. So when God is saying something new to you, you believe that God is giving you new information, divine information, some way He's communicating something, allow that to interact with old information, so to speak. Context. Your life. How has He led you so far? What path have you been traveling? This individual that you're trying to speak a word of God to, what's the road that he or she has already traveled? What has God already said to this individual? Take those things into consideration before trying to apply new information. Right? That context is tremendously important. Let me give you a simple example. Right? You have a son or like a child. This child never ever studies, right? And so you say to the kid, you got to study more, right? And you got another child. This child studies way, way, way too much. And you say, you got to play, right? What, what does that mean? You're, you're taking into the context of his life, what he's done, and you're giving completely different advice, right? And so the first one's neither strict nor lenient, right? These examples don't Talk about parenting in a way that's too strict or too lenient. You're saying that you have a child that just plays way too much, and so you're saying you need to study more. You're saying to the child that studies way too much, you need to play more, right? Because both are good for you. 
And in a sense, that information that you give to that person is based on the context of how he or she has already lived. For Paul, Paul has a mission. When Paul first was converted to Christianity on the Damascus Road, this vision from Jesus, he was blinded, led by the hand to the next city. As he was in Damascus, a Christian by the name of Ananias was given a word of God. God spoke to him, I want you to go to so-and-so's house, and you'll find a man by the name of Saul, and he has something that I want him to do. I need to tell him how much he will suffer for my namesake. That was the first prophetic word into Saul's life in Damascus by the mouth of Ananias. You're going to suffer for my name. So the entire trajectory of Paul's mission on earth, his ministry, was really leading him down a path of suffering. That it was a unique case that this individual would suffer more than others but in so doing would also glorify God greatly, right? And so Paul's trajectory, the context of his life, really was all about suffering. And as he was ministering, he really got connected to other Christians, and they began to love him as he loved them. And in these communities, emotion gets the better of them, and they forsake context, and they apply it in a way that is just premature. This is all too easy for the average Christian. It's all too easy for the mature Christian because we're emotional beings. Too often, our memory is just so short. And we look at things not with an eternal trajectory often. At times, we see things so temporal, so immediate, so short-term. And as we integrate what God speaks, let us always remember what He has said. Let us... Be keen on pushing back emotional responses and allowing ourselves the time, the space, to just sit with how He's interacting with us in the moment. And as we piece all of that together, I think we'll come to better places. We'll make more accurately applied, godly decisions. I end. As praise team comes back, three points. My takeaways. Number one, be humble, not dogmatic in applying God's Word. I mean, like sometimes we can be sticklers, right? But we need to be humble, not dogmatic in how we apply it. Number two, God can and He often does lead us to places of suffering, right? And thirdly, don't rush to judge God's will for someone else. Allow God to speak to that. I, I, it might be in you. You're a prophet. You have stuff. You're sensitive to God's will. You understand the word. Yet still, don't be quick to judge God's will for someone else. That's a space, man, that's, that can get real dangerous real quick. Right? In Christian community, we offer guidance to one another. We pray together with each other. We hold hands. We cry. And we believe in the best. And we want to guide one another. This is all good. But let us never be judgmental and let us never presume to be the voice of God for another person. Amen? Amen. Amen.